Kylie Atwood was going to be here. She's uh, with CBS News. She was going to be our moderator today. But uh, she was pulled away because John Kerry's coming back from Iran with three Americans before we sit down with Iran for the, for the, uh, to, to address the JCPOA. So she's covering Pompeo, bringing back three Americans from North Korea. Again, something that debunks the narrative that walking away from the JCPOA would hurt us with North Korea or with regards to leverage. So I will uh, take over the moderator role. We've added a, a, uh, a European panelist to, uh, to uh, you know, cover the other side. We'll gang up on him. There's four of us. There's one of him, and it should be fun. But Jonas is here. He's a new addition to the panel. We're glad to have him. He'll give, uh, he'll give the other side of this, which is great. And uh, I'm going to introduce the panel. Uh, first off, Mike Pregent here, Hudson Institute. And I'm happy to moderate, and I'll have a slash commentator role. To my immediate left, Michael Duran. Senior fellow here has done a lot of work on this. It's, uh, it's good to see that events have, have moved him towards the, the walk away position, at least last, last week. And I think that was based on Kerry when we saw that there's no way President Trump was going to allow Kerry any victory here on saving the JCPOA. To his immediate left, Richard Goldberg, who's done extensive amounts of work on sanctions, and he'll be able to tell us about uh, the right sanctions packages that are already going to be put in place, what the 90-day period looks like, and uh, basically uh, be an expert on how to use U.S. levers of power to get this right eventually. And to his immediate left, uh, Jonas Perello, a colleague of mine here at the Hudson Institute, senior fellow, a uh, supporter of the Iran deal. He was able to move some of us slightly uh, until, again, John Kerry got out there and became the face of this. Uh, and then at the end here, uh, from the FDD as well, Ben on Ben uh, We've just recently be, uh, become acquainted, uh, very smart on Iran. I've had the opportunity to be on several panels with him and also to address uh, a congressional staff on, on Iran and other aspects of Iranian terrorism when it comes to IRGC Quds Force adventurism in Iraq and Syria. So with that, I'm going to do a quick scene setter. So yesterday, the president walked away from the Iran deal. And I think everybody on this panel would tell you that unless he reimposed sanctions, it would have meant nothing. And yesterday's decision to walk away and, quote, unquote, impose the, the, the strongest and strictest of sanctions back on this, uh, this regime, uh, we're dealing with the aftermath 24 hours later. And uh, I'm going to ask each panelist, we're going to set this panel up like we do normally. I'm going to have the scene setter, and then we're just going to go into a discussion. So I'm going to ask each panelist what yesterday's decision meant and uh, the way forward, and to take between two and four minutes to address. Want to start, Mike, or? Sure, right. yeah, thanks. Um, I'm going to take no longer than a half hour, though. Roger, okay. <laughs> the, uh, no, I, I think that um, yesterday's decision was, um, by, by the time he took it, it was pretty much inevitable, uh, because he started in October with this process of negotiating um, first with the Hill, but then the Democrats hid behind the Europeans right. and told the administration that um, that they 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 couldn't sign up for any proposal to fix the holes in the deal um, before the administration could come to agreement with the Europeans. Um, and uh, to make a long story short, the Europeans were not willing um, to address the sunsets uh, in the um, in the deal, um, which I I think. M m Many uh, many sober advisor, uh, sober um, analysts saw as a massive hole in the um, in the deal. 
so once they wouldn't do that, I mean, there was no deal to be had um, with, the, with the Europeans. Um, and if we were going to use sanctions in order to combat um, Iranian activity in the region, uh, if we impose a, a sanctions on the central bank uh, or on their oil exports or uh, you know, any other major, um, major sanctions action that we would take, it would have been interpreted by the Europeans and by the world as a, uh, as a violation of the, of, of the deal. So I think that uh, both from the perspective of tying our hands in terms of trying to contain Iran um, and in terms of the Europeans not willing to make a deal with them, the deal was, the deal was dead. Now, where, where does it mean going forward? Uh, we, we shouldn't kid ourselves. We're, we're in a, an escalation now with the Iranians, and, we're, uh, and we have decided uh, to be truthful about the fact that we are compelling them to give up the major part of their nuclear program. Um, and that's not, that's not an easy task. That means we have to work very hard and directly to get leverage over them in all areas. I, mean, I, I expect that at some point the Iranians are going to try to um, put pressure on us by uh, threatening our soldiers in Iraq, threatening our soldiers in Syria, right. uh, driving a wedge between us and the, um, uh, and the Israelis. I'm not so worried about them driving a wedge between us and the Europeans that everyone keeps talking about. Uh, and I'll just end on this point. Um, I think the notion that the European allies are going to line up with the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians against us um, is just fanciful. Uh, I'm not trying to say that the Europeans like the decision. Uh, I'm sure that Jonas will have more to say about this like the decision that, that Trump made. But the, the choice for them is, is, very, sim, is very simple. It's uh, do I do business with the Iranian economy or do I do business with the American economy? They're going to choose the, the American economy, whether they like it or not. That's the choice they're going to make. And they've known it all along, right? right so right. The, so the, all, the, the condemnation we are hearing from them is mere rhetoric and has nothing to do with the actions they're going to take. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be considerate of their, of their feelings and think about it, but the idea that they're, in terms of their actions, that they're going to line up with, our, with their enemies and our enemies against us, it's fanciful. Right. I'm going to go to Jonas now. I think you're the best person to follow what Mike said to be able to talk about some of those things. Thanks, Mike. Well, first of all, thanks for adding me uh, uh, to the panel here as, as the resident European. and. Uh, <laughs> And as the point is spoiler, otherwise these four gentlemen were ready just to sort of do a quick panel, head to, to the bar and high five and say, <laughs> Diran deal, we are out and we are happy. So I'll add a little bit of a, of a different perspective also on it. Um, let me just start with, I think, I mean, the bottom line that Iran should never get a nuclear weapon is something that's completely shared on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, that was what President Macron was also saying sort of with a lot of rhetorical swarm when he was speaking in Congress. So. I mean, and that's so that was also sort of the genesis of the uh, of the Iran deal was saying that this should not, never happen. So, um, so I just wanted to sort of to highlight that. So there is no sort of fundamental disagreement on what is is the goal of of sort of um, negotiation with uh, with Iran. I think among Europeans or among um, Americans. Second point, I think it's important here to underline that this deal <laughs> is multilateral. It means that the fact that the U.S. pulls out doesn't mean there are still um, other signatories uh, to the deal. There is, of course, the EU, there are the E3, the, um, France, Germany, UK, there is China, Russia, and it's even blessed by the, by the UN. So um, that doesn't, so the fact that the US withdraws doesn't necessarily mean that the deal uh, sort of goes down immediately. 
Um, so what seems to be the disagreement is really about whether the you could build on the on the current deal to sort of uh, make us safer and sort of get um, a more ahead. So I, I think there wasn't there was a recognition from from Europeans as well of saying there are other activities of Iran, there are the missile program, there are sort of the terror activities in the region um, that you could sort of address those in sort of add-on add-on deals, which is basically again sort of the message when uh, President Macron was here in town of saying what. Let's keep uh, the current deal unless we sort of have a sort of a plan plan B for it. Uh, so I think that was very much the, the European perspective. Um, so what's going to happen now? Um, as as you saw, sort of statement from um, European leaders uh, yesterday, they are intent on continuing the deal. Um, it seems to be the same message from uh, from Iran. Although of course Rouhani is sort of pressed by uh, hardliners. Um, Russia and China, uh, the same. So, um, so basically, there would be, I think, a little bit of a lull right now because the sanctions, as Richard will address later, will kick in in sort of August and November. Uh, so there'd be some time. So, and if, if we look at two options, there would be a best case option, which is where um, uh, there is actually um, joint European and American work on a sort of new and better deal of saying how do we actually supplement on the missile on the sunset clauses. In, in the current deal on sort of Iran's um, malign activities in the region. Um, that's sort of best case. The sort of worst case would be some sort of uh, minor sort of European-American standoff on sanctions. I agree with Mike that European companies are going to make their own calculations, and all the big ones will see that the US market and the access to US financial services is more important to them than being in a sort of relatively small uh, economy that's the Iranian. But that's also where it's going to be hard for the Europeans if um, sanctions kick in without waivers or anything that the Iranians, of course, will evaluate and say if, if the economic benefits that were also part of the, of the JCPOA are, are ended, of course, their incentive for staying in the deal uh, is lowered. And if you saw the statement from Macron, Merkel, and, and, and May, the three M's, they had that, that they were going to continues sort of the economic benefits that flowed from, from the Iran deal. So that's, of course, going to be tested. So that's sort of, I would say, worst case that we have a sort of uh, a spat around uh, whether would European governments then some try to sort of protect their companies or do sort of counter legislation, which we've seen all the way, or challenge it at WTO, um, which we've seen sort of in much earlier cases around the Cuba sanctions. Um, and I also want to address on sort of the sanctions that sanctions really uh, worked back in 2010 and 2012 when he was enforcing them because other allies did them. I mean, I think a lot of, particularly if you go up to Congress, like sort of, we, we did it. Yes, but I mean, the US doesn't really trade with Iran, which other countries that trade. So it was right. Europeans that during the height of Eurocrisis in 2011, uh, particularly actually Italy and Greece, so uh, I sort of commend those two countries that completely cut down their, their sort of oil from um, from Iran, even though they're in the midst of the crisis and we're right, actually right. facing a really hard time. So in order for sanctions this time around to work, you need that sort of uh, transatlantic unity. So that's that's where, I mean, back to sort of the base case scenario. I mean, I hope you could right. build something in this in this period, but it's it's a big gamble, basically, of throwing uh, or drawing from this deal here and saying within sort of six months we're going to get something that's way better. Right. So I just want to say something before I go to Rich. I mean, Zarif's main complaint about the U.S. violating the Iran deal 
was that the U.S. wasn't encouraging economic investment in Iran, especially when it comes to Europe and other places. That was Zarif's main complaint and main, main uh, issue that he cited that the U.S. wasn't complying with the JCPOA. Well, that is gone now. And so that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. But I'm going to go to Rich to, to address those issues. And uh, the first question, and of course, follow on Jonas there. Yeah, I think the greatest thing that happened by withdrawing from the deal is that we've now, by nixing, fixed the fatal flaw of the deal. In my view, we've been negotiating with our European allies for months uh, over the wrong issues. Analytically, a nonproliferation expert in an academic setting looks at the deal and assumes that both parties keep the deal forever. And under that sort of vacuum, you would say, well, we have sunsets in, in these provisions. They need to be extended. Uh, we haven't uh, considered missiles. We haven't, uh, you know, we need tighter inspections. But even if you were able to address the issue of the sunsets in a true way, the way that the Europeans were conducting themselves in negotiations would have ensured that Iran would not actually trip any wires in the conditions set under a fix. And what Iran really wanted as a strategy long term under the JCPOA is to regain economic strength get all of the benefits of the deal economically, entrench itself throughout the region, build its missile program. It offered to cap its missiles at 2,000 kilometers, which is very nice, I guess, if you're beyond that range, and not so good if you're within that range. What countries uh, are within that range? Yeah, they, they, yeah they, there's a lot of them. They're probably the same countries that seem to be applauding the fact that the president right. did what he did That's yesterday. Right. Amazing how that works. <laughs> uh, but the fundamental flaw is, is that we were handcuffed to do anything about all these issues. And you would see Iran over time decide for itself when the sunset of the deal is. It, the sunset has a built-in sunset. It's called the Iranians choosing a time of their own to withdraw from the deal and build their weapon. And they would do it 10, 15 years from now when they're economically stronger, when they're spread out throughout the region, when their missiles are perfected, uh, when, when they really feel like their R&D on their centrifuges are ready to go. That's when they have their own sunset, no matter what, what an agreement says. And the problem for the Europeans was they were addicted to the commercial investment corridors. And once those were reopened under the JCPOA, the Europeans, it feels like, just had a political problem at home where they couldn't tell their companies, we are going to close the door again. And so any conditions in a supplemental agreement had to assure their domestic audiences they weren't going to bring sanctions back. That's why there was negotiations over missiles that only dealt with missiles that don't exist yet, ICBMs, not the ones that do exist. Because if Iran tested an existing missile, then all the sanctions would come back and the European companies would lose their, lose their trade. The same goes on and on. That's why they didn't want sunsets. They didn't want to force Iran away from the deal. They didn't want to lose their trade. They didn't want to give Donald Trump a reason to bring sanctions back. The reason why the deal was so flawed is we gave away all of our sanctions pressure and got concessions for a limited amount of time in one limited area of all of Iran's malign activities. And we handcuffed ourselves to do anything about anything else outside of military means. What we've now done is taken the handcuffs off. We now have non-military means available to address a whole range of issues. We did not have them two days ago. It also frees up military options as well now that uh you know, Mattis's, the constraints on Mattis were, were, were evident. Mattis believed that targeting any emergency could force entities in Syria would somehow derail the Iran deal. 
Now, there, the constraints have also been lifted on, on our military to do things as well. I think that's right. I think there's a, a strategic shift that, that now has to occur. JCPOA put us into a period of detente. And if you kind of study the period <clears throat> of detente in the Soviet era, and you see what that did to all means of American power confronting the Soviets, and the pushback you had in an interagency at all times, that you didn't want to jeopardize detente. You couldn't do things to anger the Soviets. Same was true inside the Pentagon, Joint Staff, elsewhere in our administration and among our allies uh, towards the Iranians. One point on the sanctions coming back. Very important to note that we have these wind-down periods that have been announced, 90 days, 180 days. Those are wind-down periods of existing activities under the JCPOA. You do not start new business. What happened yesterday at around 2.15 p.m. around the world, there was probably some surge in the internet that you could feel because it was the number of emails coming from corporate councils to their CEOs telling them to halt all transactions immediately with the Islamic Republic of Iran. That is what happened yesterday around the world in any legitimate corporation, any financial institution. Because now they have to wind down existing contracts that already existed prior to May 8th, but not enter any new ones. And if you are a financial institution, even a government-owned financial institution, if you are an insurer or a reinsurer, an underwriter, uh, you are on the hook for really harsh cutoff from the U.S. market and access to, to our banking system if you're caught involved in a project in Iran. And so there's going to be a very quick rush now to wind down business with Iran in the private sector. In the FAQ, the frequently asked questions the Treasury issued yesterday, you'll also see that the significant reductions of oil imports from Iran start now not in 180 days. In 180 days, countries that import oil will be judged on how much they've significantly reduced between now and November. So the pressure on Iran starts immediately. The other big thing, I'll close with this, this is not happening in a vacuum. There are, there are things that have been going on inside Iran since October when the president decertified the deal under a different piece of legislation. The currency is in free fall. It has been in free fall. So much so that the regime was so scared of their coming liquidity crisis that they made it illegal to trade foreign currencies inside Iran privately. They equated it to selling drugs and threatened people with arrest. People who were standing in line to get foreign currencies were threatened with arrest. A travel ban was issued. You can't leave the country today with an excess amount over about 1,000 euros each. You can't hold on to money at home over a certain amount. You've got to put it into a government-controlled bank. And they've merged their two exchange rates, their official and their unofficial exchange rate. So what that means right now is they are drawing down on their foreign exchange reserves to avoid price spikes in imported goods. What our sanctions do, part of it, is they put all their foreign-held reserves on lockdown. Any money that's paid to the regime in a foreign-held account is now in an escrow account. Can't move can't get repatriated, can't be converted to a different currency, stays there in the local currency for local goods. Iran is going to face very quickly an extreme liquidity crisis like it's never seen before, and a balance of payments crisis like it almost had in 2013 before we gave the pressure away. That is happening at the same time as everything else. And so we're going to talk a lot about different escalation moves that the Iranians may make, what Europe's doing, et cetera got to keep our eye on the ball. This is about the real. It's about the regime's access to currency. And the more we focus on that, the more pressure we will bring to bear, and the better the results will be.
The, the one thing that's interesting is the, the Toman was 3,000 Tomans to one U.S. dollar in 2015. Yesterday it was 7,000 to one U.S. dollar. Today it's 8,000 to one U.S. dollar. That's already significantly cut uh, what, what economic incentives uh, Europe was hoping to see as they invested in Iran. So it is in free fall. My concern as a person who looks at the region is that the IRGC will now look at places like Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon to be shell companies for the regime to offset U.S. sanctions. But what you said, it kind of locks that down. I want to get back to you on that point later, and I would like to follow with you. Sure, it's a tough act to follow. Yeah, uh, I mean, thanks for having me. Um, let me essentially begin by outing myself here. I'm a proponent of what I like to call a genuine fix to the JCPOA. And what, what drives me to want to be a quote-unquote genuine fixer is that I forgot who said this quote, but whoever said it is really brilliant, that foreign policy, particularly successful foreign policy, is not about strategy or tactics or strategy or values. It's about logistics. And anyone who spent any time in this town knows that it's really, everyone brings a particular logistical competency and capability to bear. And so what a unilateral withdrawal and a full restoration of sanctions does is, is it complicates that logistics train for US foreign policy. It complicates it given the heavy things we have going on in the month of May. Iraq elections on May 12, North Korea talks later on, uh, moving the embassy on the 14th, Ramadan on the 16th or 17th. There's a lot going on in May, and it's just particularly a lot for any U.S. administration to juggle. So the, the point of this is to say that it may not have been the best things, not in terms of strategy or values or sanctions, but in terms of logistics to make a unilateral withdrawal. But now that it happened, I think the best thing for U.S. sanctions is once you get to the end of that 180-day period, so you look at the FAQ, there's the 90-day and the 180-day wind down. Once you get to the end of that in November, the U.S. cannot prevaricate. And I don't think the U.S. will prevaricate because the way the pre president responded was he restored all nuclear sanctions at once. That's the sanctions found in four key pieces of legislations that we politically call nuclear sanctions. That's the Iran Sanctions Act as amended, which includes ISADA. That's the Iran Threat Reduction Syria Human Rights Act. That's the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012. And that's also the Iran Freedom and Counterproliferation Act. So all, all penalties contained in here need to be reinstated in MOS when we get to the end of that 180-day period, which is around November 4, November 5, 2018. And the reason we can't let a prevarication get to us and worry about are we going to go after a European state-owned company or are we going to go after a European bank? Are we going to go after a medium-sized European company or a, or a multinational company headquartered in Europe that has a lot of American staff? The, the reason we can't entertain these different spirals is because if we prevaricate then, then we've done something uh, to cast doubt over our secondary sanctions competency and capability. And then that would lead to an escalation spiral in the transatlantic community of maybe we can shelter some select European entities that do business with Iran. Maybe we can have smaller, medium-sized banks that don't tra transact in the US dollar. Maybe we can have Iranian central bank officials here a little bit more often. So it opens up a little bit in the, in the, in the transatlantic world, the possibility uh, for Europe to hedge against us and to tow the Iranian narrative. Now, another reason why I wasn't a proponent of a unilateral withdrawal um, is because I'm just not a fan of the US airing its dirty laundry with the EU in front of Iran, particularly with an administration like the Rouhani administration. The reason being, the Rouhani administration from 2003 to 2005, uh, Rouhani himself from 2003 to 2005, is the man who prevented the transfer of Iran's nuclear file from the IAEA to the UN Security Council. You'll notice when the Khatib administration changed and Rouhani was seized of his job as chief nuclear negotiator, that's when we commenced the beginning of the UN Security Council sanctions. Rouhani was the one who, pre prevent, who used the Europeans against the Bush administration to start this process much earlier. 
had that diplomatic track started much earlier, I don't think we would have been in the position today with sanctions and centrifuges and JCPOA. So beware the competency of the Rouhani administration. I would not undersell what they would do to court Europe. Now that being said, the focus really, as Rich was saying, was on is on financial power now. If Had we remained in the JCPOA, it would have been on what Iran is doing in the nuclear realm, what Iran is doing in the region, the attempt to fix the deal more generally. Now that the spotlight is on our financial power, the president is reinstating those four key pieces of legislation that I mentioned. And the spotlight is on can the US coerce or compel Iran to come back to us unilaterally. It's essentially a move reminiscent of two things we've two things done to Iran in the past. Iran will say no, 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 and then under a condition of maximum pressure, finally cry uncle. There's only two times I think that Iran has done that to make a strategic course correction. One is at the end of the Iran-Iraq war, when for seven years, Iran's first supreme leader and founding father of the Islamic Republic said war, war, war until victory with Saddam. Then at the end of the eighth year, in the middle of the eighth year, he said, I'm drinking from the poison chalice, accepting the UN Security Council resolution, and I take back all that I said about the Iran-Iraq war. Powerful move. But not everyone has the charisma or legitimacy of Khomeini to be able to do that. And it's an open question right now, uh, can Khamenei make an about face even if he's presented with those prop propitious conditions of massive economic pressure? I would also just note on the sanctions file, um, throughout the JCPOA's implementation period, which we now know for the US was January 2016 to May 8th, 2018, um, we did not take a single Annex II entity, basically an entity that the deal delisted and relist it under existing non-nuclear authorities for non-nuclear reasons. I think if I'm more than happy to start an escalation chain with Iran, I know we can win many of those escalation spirals. Um, but I would have started a little bit lower. You know, what we do now is we're now going to be going after the CBI. That's essentially the nuclear option. That's essentially replicating the conditions under which we sanctioned Iran from 2010 to 2013. I would have gone with a smaller, medium-sized Iranian bank. I would have escalated the number of Treasury Department designations. I would have gone after the Supreme Leader's uh, private holding company. There is no reason why, as Rich was talking about those conditions since 2017, when the Iranians were protesting on the streets saying death to the dictator, that the Trump administration did not set this useful precedent to reach into Annex II, take the Supreme Leader's holding company, which although is off limits to US persons, European and Asian banks and businesses can transact with under the deal, and say, I'm gonna relist this entity under new authorities for corruption and human rights abuses and money laundering. That he could use the Global Magnitsky Act to do that. That would send a, send a very chilling effect to the Iranian economy and would be a very useful precedent to use non-nuclear coercive measures, be consistent with the deal, and put pressure on Iran. And through that, you can get Iran to agree to whatever you would agree to with the Europeans to fix the deal. So I don't want to cry over spilt milk, but I'm part of this dying fix it through the deal camp. Right. That's what, that's what would have been happened. And I, th I just want to end on, on a note. Uh, there's an open question right now on US strategy. Rich mentioned um, the sanctions that would come back starting uh, or, or kick in at the end of uh, November 4th. What is US strategy? What is, what is the point of US strategy? If we're focusing on the real, is it just simply to collapse the real? Is it to facilitate? regime change, regime, regime transformation. I, I, I'd be okay with that, by the way. Just, we, we need to define what the target is for reinstating this massive nuclear sanctions regime. Is it to get Iran to come to us and propose a better deal? Is it to divorce ourselves of the transatlantic fix and no longer deal with the Europeans? What is, what is the political use of this, this powerful economic weapon, which is about to be tested in new and creative ways 
um, with Iran. I'll just leave on that note. No, the, the, those are all good. We've talked about financial power. We've talked about uh, talked about our economic levers. Uh, the one rec the recommendations that you made about going after Satad and going after the EIKO, which is basically the same thing, and CBI were all conditions that Iran would have said were violations of the Irando, and they would have walked away. Uh, part of that strategy would have been, well, let's do that. Better than so they, they walk away. Then we will. So we look. <laughs> but uh, again, the president was advised not to even touch any of those things by members in his cabinet. I want to go to Mike here in a second and talk about those dynamics between Pompeo, Bolton, and Mattis, if you can think about that. But I want to go, uh, I want to ask the panelists first before we go back to that. Uh, we talked about financial power. Now the rhetoric out of Iran is asymmetrical warfare, threats, uh, what to do. And uh, go! Iranian interference. <laughs> <laughs> Go! All right, all right, cool. Yeah, nice try, Ron. It's not going to work. All right, I mean the regime, not the Iranian people, sorry. Um, anyway, so that we've heard threats, and what I'd like to ask Jonas now is, what makes Europe walk away? I mean, you know, the, the narrative is, and we, we tackled the, will the EU pick Iran over the United States? I think every panelist already talked about, you know, you pick a $20 trillion economy over Iran's uh, you know, down, downward spiraling economy. You do that, but you know, the narrative is: well, won't this just, just won't this just make Iran worse, a worse player in the Middle East, and and won't it just make them rush to the bomb? And, and don't those things lose Europe? I mean, what actions would lose Europe, Jonas? Sure. No, no. I mean, the deal has all its criteria. So I think there's a very simple answer to that. It depends on IAEA. Uh, inspection it depends on their verification that I, Iran uh, lives up to the deal. So as long as that sort of compliance is there, uh, I think um, Europe is still on board. So of course, if Iran were to decide, which sort of Rouhani in his, his latest statement hinted at that they could go back to industrial scale enrichment, that would of course be a completely material breach of the deal and it would be uh, uh, in, in non-compliance. And, and that would be, and that's also where I thought Ben's and actually, I think a lot of Europeans expected that initially, which was sort of what we called sort of the death by a thousand blows to the deal, was really of using sanctions and of testing Iran by putting on people that have been removed from <coughs> the nuclear for other reasons. Right, right. Which uh, I also personally think would have been a sort of clever strategy in the sense that you, you would have pushed Iranians perhaps to sort of say, uh, would they then leave it? Because now it's basically the, UN, uh, the US that sort of unilaterally withdraws. Right. Initially, when we saw the Annex II concessions, the non-nuclear concessions, we saw people like Qasem Soleimani on this and Mohammad Reza Nakhdi of the Besiege. And to Mike's point yesterday, Mike had a great tweet out there that said, uh, you know, um, President Obama didn't know that his sunset clause expired or that the Iran deal expired. Well, Kerry didn't know who Qasem Soleimani was in 2015. And what we learned from the president yesterday that he wasn't aware that the Iran deal expired. I mean, what, what, do you th what do you think about that? We've been talking about this for three years now. and I, I actually don't agree with my colleagues here. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I, I mean, we're, we're kidding ourselves. One of, the, one of the lies that the deal was based on, you, you know, when, when, uh, when Benjamin Netanyahu showed all these, uh, uh, this huge cache of documents that, they that the Israelis captured in, in Iran, um, the the supporters of the deal immediately came out and said, "There's nothing new here." Of course, there was an enormous amount new there, new uh, new 
information about new technologies, information about a deception uh, program, information about personnel, and so on and so forth. But um, also, when they sold the deal, John Kerry went before Congress and testified that Iran had given up its weapons program uh, because there was a fatwa, right? So if, if not, do we actually believe that? Did John Kerry actually believe that? Well, he said it before Congress in, in, in testimony. And the, the fiction here was, e even if you say that, well, well Kerry was, you know, was not naive, he was trying to create a political environment that would pull Iran in, in this direction or that direction, there was this notion, which the administration very carefully uh, cultivated, that Iran had made a strategic decision to shift in, in, in toward the West to leave the worst aspects of its behavior behind, and so on. And that's a total fantasy. It's, right. it's, a, it, it's a total fantasy. And, and it's a, in that regard that I disagree with uh, some of the things that you guys are saying. Because if we're to get serious about a policy of containing Iran in the region, to make them pay a price for what they're uh, for the support of the Assad regime in Syria, uh, the the uh, the indiscriminate slaughter of civilians, for the putting missiles in in Yemen that uh, that threaten our uh, the capital of our Saudi ally and so on and so forth. If we get serious about a policy to contain that. At a certain moment, that means we're going to carry out policies that are going to cut into European-Iranian trade. The, Europe, the, the, the Iranians are going to cry foul, and so are the Europeans. So if we, get, if we have a serious containment policy, we're going to be accused of having left the spirit of the deal. And I just think we have to be honest about that. So um, I actually would have preferred that the Trump administration did this differently as well. I would have liked them, first of all, to put together the containment in the region strategy, got the Europeans to sign up for that, mm -hmm. and put pressure on the Iranians that way. But let, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves. Sooner or later, the clash between the United States and Iran was coming, and the Europeans were going to have to be dragged to our side. They were not going to come willing because the deal created an economic lobby in Europe in favor of the uh, in favor of the deal, and there isn't a strong security lobby in 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 Europe, with the ex with the exception of some components of the French system. Not the Germans and not the British. They're not really signing up for a strong containment policy against uh, Iran. And that's just the nature of the world. So let's 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 be clear about it. So to that strategy, oh, good. Uh, just a two finger. I mean. Just wanted to say that I mean nobody claimed that the JCPOA was going to solve everything around Iran. It was an arms control deal, or, uh, and is an arms control deal around uh, Iran's nuclear program. It does not sort of make Iran move from a theocracy into sort of benign democracy. It does not sort of curb its missile program. It does, so all these things we're, we're aware of, and I think Europeans are completely on board that Iran has moved in the wrong direction in, in right. those years since. And there is more to do on the, again, back to sort of that was what Macron was also saying in Congress. This is what we're willing to sort of uh, address as well. So. To, that, to that point, it was an arms control agreement for us. It was everything else for them. It reactivated their terror networks. It reactivated their logistical support networks. It reactivated banks that supported terrorism. It kept our Americans in prison. It did all these things. It was an arms control agreement for us, and they came to the table to get everything else. We unilaterally, we, we, we unilaterally disarmed in terms of economic sanctions. Rich made the point about this handcuffing us. So we, in order to get this, in order to get the nuclear deal, we, we, we 
we basically said we're not going to use any of those tools. It, the, the Iran deal redefined economic sanctions that were put on Iran for reasons other than the nuclear deal or reasons for the, their behavior in general, including the nuclear deal. It redefined all of those as nuclear sanctions. And that's that's that is a major flaw in the in, in the deal. So the minute we read the minute we if, if we use some uh, the legislation from last August to slap sanctions on the central bank of Iran, the Iranians and the Europeans for what they're doing in Syria, the Iranians and the Europeans were going to say you can't do that under the uh, under the JCPOA. And then we'd and then we'd be at loggerheads with the Europeans. All right, Jonas, get them, and then I'll go to you. Well, I was just going to ask a sort of uh, counter question a little bit to when you applaud this move is to say, I think also the allies that have been sort of strongly, US allies that have been strongly in favor of this, Israel and Saudi Arabia, notably in sort of the first end, is sort of the question that Mike was also hinting at, is there a broader Iran strategy in this administration? So I mean, if at the same time the Israelis have put their red lines very clearly on, on Iran in Syria, uh, but Trump is talking about leaving Syria sooner than later, so my question would just be, I mean, are those allies not sort of, if you're just being pu pushed out there, because you also have a president who doesn't want to start any sort of stupid wars in the Middle East, and, and not at all a sort of new Iran war, which, um, so that sort of my counter question is, if you want to take this containment strategy all the way to the end, do you actually really think there is a strategy and a willingness to do that? I think there's a push by Pompeo and, and Bolton to have a strategy, and I think Mattis is being marginalized here. Uh, there are some issues, but, but the one thing that I would say is when the president says, don't give me my own war in the Middle East, you get one anyway, because your enemies are still doing things. And I want to go to you, uh, you and then you, Rich. Go ahead. Well, just, I, just four, four important points to respond there. Um, I fully agree with Mike. There was essentially- an, oh, which, which Mike? This, uh, this Mike or? Both Mike's, but this, <laughs> but, but this time, but this time Durant. Mike. This time Durant. Mike. He'll be Michael, I'll be Mike. Michael. It's Lesser Mike. Mike. It's like Macron and yeah. Michael, yeah. Right. I fully agree. <laughs> I fully agree with Michael. There, we should know this. There was a gentleman's agreement in Washington right after the deal was agreed to. And the gentleman's agreement was, which the pro-deal community habitually violated, by the way. The gentleman's agreement was, okay, fine, you got this limited deal whatever. Now the anti-deal community are those who don't think that the JCPOA sufficiently dealt with either the nuclear threat or the rest of the Iran threat, which by the way has been a threat since that regime has been conceived in 1979. They, the nuclear group, the pro-deal group, continuously thwarted any attempt to genuinely reconstitute a sanctions architecture that could do damage to the Iranian economy on non-nuclear grounds right. using existing or new authorities <coughs> by continuously floating this argument. That violates the spirit of the deal, or this impedes the implementation of the deal. And they won. Hands down, they won every time. Trump and Obama combined together have designated 73 entities alone, Iranian and foreign, on counterproliferation authorities. They have not designated a single Iranian bank. They were afraid. There is only one <laughs> major piece of legislation that was signed and it became public law. Uh, under the Trump administration, which I think rightly laid out a comprehensive Iran strategy, which has not been turned into a policy. And that one piece of legislation is CATSA. There are tons of bills that actually deal with those non-nuclear elements of Iranian bad behavior, particularly ballistic missiles, that are stuck in the House that have not been picked up in the Senate because they are impeded by this one very powerful argument that this somehow thwarts the nuclear deal. Right, right. I would have simply liked to be in a world where we're violating the spirit of the deal rather than the letter of the deal and let the Iranians be the ones that violate the letter of the deal. But I, but, but I fully agree. The other side violated the gentleman's agreement. Well, what's interesting is two, two of those entities okay. are, are 
Assab Ahol Haq, an RGC Quds Force militia in Iraq, Absolutely. and Harakat Nujeba, both opposed by Secretary Mattis. He's the one that's saying we shouldn't put sanctions on them because we don't want to interfere in Iraq's, the Iraqi government. But really, it's because of the Iran deal, the constraints of the Iran deal. This Absolutely. would be a violation of the spirit of the law. And absent those constraints, uh, again, I, I do want to focus on what this means for a change in U.S. policy against Iran. Because again, in the president's national security strategy, it states, defeat ISIS and curb Iranian influence using allies. And uh, we don't have a, a counter-Iran strategy in Iraq. We don't have a counter-Iran strategy in Syria. Do we have one now? I'll go to you first. You want to answer on the last one? And then I'll put that question to the panel. Do we, do, should we have one now? Can we have one now? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do both. I think in, in terms of this idea of using the non-nuclear sanctions argument as a way to have saved the nuclear deal, uh, Mike Duran is exactly right. Uh, this was something that was rejected out of hand. I like hand. to hear that. Can we actually say that again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was exactly right on that issue. Uh, <laughs> to tweet that. Uh, <laughs> on that issue, I didn't the, like that bit. Yeah, well, you know, got to nuance it. Uh, the Europeans rejected that out of hand. Uh, many of us, uh, whether you were in the quote-unquote fixed camp or the true fixed camp, which was sort of a hardliner version of the fixed camp, um, basically said we would accept some sort of a fix and, and a status quo so long as the Europeans accepted and supported our right to impose all these sanctions, namely uh, targeting the central bank for its support of the Assad regime. And that would have cut off the commercial transactions just like what's happening today, and the re Europeans refused to accept that. The ideas that they were willing to accept on the table, I actually think were more in terms of a containment strategy in the, in the idea that you declare sort of an armistice with Iran. As far as they've gone in the region, you can't go further. As far as they've developed their missiles, you can't go further. Whatever you've done with your nuclear program, you can't go further. After that, you'll incur the wrath of tough sanctions. Anything before that is sort of what they've gotten out of the deal so far. That to me is sort of what the additional framework, the, the supplemental agreement that was being negotiated sounded like. And I think where we are moving now by taking off the handcuffs and having full maximum pressure back and the uh, statements that the uh, president, uh, President Trump said when Macron was in town and really talked for the first time openly about needing to push Iran out of Syria, uh, that was a very welcome statement. That does mean there is an intellectual change going on. There is a strategy you know, being put together. And rather than, you know, we've sort of moved from detente. There was a push by the Europeans to save detente by embracing some sort of containment. And I think we are moving into a true rollback strategy, something of a victory strategy. Now, people may not like that. People may just say, oh, it's unachievable. You know, you, you'll just never get around to stop sponsoring terrorism. You'll just never get around to dismantle its nuclear program. You'll just never get around to pull out of Syria and Yemen. Okay, that's your opinion. That doesn't mean that that's not a national security priority and should be our policy and have a strategy in place to try to accomplish that. And the Iranians may, may collapse along the way internally, you know, with people in the streets saying we want a different political system. And so the outcome of a strategy is we, we are very clear on the goals that the president outlined yesterday. And he was very clear. He talked about the ballistic missiles and the nuclear program. He talked about terrorism. He talked about their destabilizing activities in the region. He named them. If those are our objectives, and we're going to use all parts of U.S. power to, to try to achieve them, and along the way, that maximum pressure in the currency crisis we talked about may actually cause the Iranian regime to implode, I mean, that would be very similar to the strategy of the 1980s versus the Soviet Union.
Yeah, so we, we don't have, uh, I agree with everything Rich said, and I always agree with everything. Say, say, say that again. I, say agree, that again. With, I agree with everything Rich said. This is a real no qualification. This is a romance emerging. Mike, you ask about the regional strategy. No, we don't, we don't really have one right. at, at the moment, because we're, we're betwixt and between. Um, because the, the unspoken, unacknowledged strategy of President Obama was to turn Russia and Iran into, um, into partners for stabilizing the, the, the Middle East. They wouldn't necessarily be allies, but the, the, the theory of the Obama policy, again, they never, none of the um, Obama supporters or Obama administration former officials admit this, but the goal was, the, 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 the assumption was the Iranians and the Russians share a U.S. interest in stabilizing Syria, stabilizing Iraq, and fighting Sunni terrorism. Mm. And on that basis, we can come to an accommodation with them as long as we show them that we're not trying to really, un to, to really undermine them. And it, it, was, it was based on false assumptions, their, their, their policy. But on the basis of that, the U.S. pulled back from its traditional allies. I mean, President Obama spoke openly about achieving a balance between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So we're no longer the great power we're no longer the great power patron of Saudi Arabia. We're the mediator between the Iranians and the uh, and the um, and the Saudis. The effect of that was just to to uh, to to recognize tacitly Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon as uh, Iranian uh, spheres of influence, and we we pulled back from doing anything to really counter the Iranians seriously. And, right. and in fact, in, in in Iraq, our air force became the air force of the IRGC on the um, uh, on the ground. And President Trump came in, and he has a totally different theology. Um, and the, the theology of the administration is that it's countering Iran across the region. But the, but the counter-Iran strategy that they put together is indirect, So which, which basically means we don't actually go up against them in any serious way. And you saw the contradiction became kind of public and clear um, a couple months ago, right after Secretary of, then Secretary of State Tillerson said, the strategy of the United States is to counter Iran throughout the Middle East. And then about a week later, General Votel, Commander CENTCOM, testified before Congress, and he was asked, what is the U.S. military doing to counter Iran in Syria? And he said, it is not a U.S. military mission right, to counter right. Iran in Syria. So if our strategy is to counter Iran, but in the area where they're making the greatest inroads and where they're showing the, um, the, the where they're flexing their muscle, uh, the greatest Syria. We're not doing anything to to, to stop it. So what what that uh, what that what that policy did, started by Obama and kind of continued by Trump, uh, was that it pushed allies like the Israelis um, out into the front line. So the Israelis, in order to counter the Iranians, have to either take direct military action, or they have to go and and make a beeline to Moscow and negotiate with Putin in the hopes that Putin will help uh, the Israelis constrain the um, the um, the Iranians. Now, the U.S., under, under the Trump theology, the U.S. is returning to support for traditional allies. So the Israelis are getting now more diplomatic support from the U.S. than they got under Obama. And we see, you know, uh, a quickening of the pace and the severity of the military operations that the, that the Israelis are carrying out in Syria, which is a good thing because they're because they're doing some damage to the to, to the Iranians there. Right. But I look <clears> at the and I'll, I'll, I'll end here quickly. Right. The 
if you go last February, you see uh, almost simultaneously the U.S. Uh, the U.S. carried out an operation against the Russians and the Iranians, and within about two hours, we killed 200 Russians on the ground when they went to go to try to take the oil right, in right. Deir Ezzor. At the same time, the Iranians probed the Israelis and sent this armed drone into Israel, and the Israelis responded aggressively against an Iranian airbase or the Iranian segment section of an airbase in Syria. Now, those are two. Military actions being carried out in parallel by the U.S. and Israel, but each one was operating in support of their own red lines. In our case, we were using force protection authorities yeah. to try to when when we were being challenged by the Russians and the, Iran, yeah. and the Iranians, and in the Israeli case, <clears throat> they had been probed by the by the Iranians. I look at that and say, Gosh, what if we actually talked to each other, uh, the the American military and the Israeli military, and we had a strategy to at least contain, but I would say contain and degrade. Mm, right. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be we're going to destroy Iran together, operating, but, but if we actually had a combined policy, military policy, to cause the Iranians pain, I guarantee that they would hear, that right. they would feel that in Tehran immediately, they would feel it in Moscow, Dip and our diplomatic leverage in the, uh, in, in the regional contest and on the nuclear thing would, would increase exponentially. But the military, the military has, it, we still have, um, I think, the Obama mindset in, in the military, which is don't do anything to irritate the Iranians. They'll upset things in Iraq. They'll upset things in Lebanon. They'll upset things in um, Things in, are already in doing. <laughs> and, and, and there's also a tendency right. in, the, in the military where they see the Israelis taking actions. The, the line of the Trump administration is Israel has a right to protect itself. But the, but the feeling of the military is, oh, God, what are the Israelis going to do that's going to drag us in? And, and, and I think that's a, a counterproductive way of seeing things. We're, we're going to get more diplomatically out of the Russians and the Iranians if we threaten them, if we, if we, if we show that things that they hold dear are, um, are at risk, right. then we'll get by being nice guys. Right. The, the interesting thing about all of that is um, I, hate, I hate to go back to General Mattis here. I, I used to work for him, and when I worked for him, he said he went to bed at night thinking about three things, Iran, Iran, and Iran. And now he goes to bed thinking about three things, what not to do about Iran, how to not do anything about Iran, how to keep the military from doing something against Iran. And I think to your point, uh, again, Secret uh, Secretary Mattis testified, uh, you know, Votel, Dunford, and Mattis all said the same thing. We are not in Syria to stop Iran. We're in Syria to defeat ISIS. And I'm concerned about a bumper sticker campaign where ISIS is defeated, a body wins in Iraq, and the Iran deal is killed. All is well in the Middle East. Uh, the biggest thing is what, with what Israel has done in Syria, what we've been able to do is Syria is a free fire zone. Uh, we can hit Wagner, kill 200 Russians because they're a proxy force. Erdogan can kill YPG, Kurd members in the SDF because they're a proxy force. And we can decimate Harakat Nujeba as they move on Al-Tamf in Syria because they're a proxy force. Israel's showing us, hey, you can actually hit a military. We're hitting the IRGC Quds Force with impunity, and Russia's sitting on its hands. Assad is sitting on its hands. I think there's a lot of lessons there. And I think, uh, so I'll go to, to, to Jonas, and then I'm going to go to you, and then I'm going to go to you, Rich, on this. Jonas. Well, I'll just add a sort of the perplexed European. It doesn't yes. sound, listening to you, as if there is a real sort of strategy. No, there's not. There's not. Whether it's there needs to be. Whether it's regime change, whether it has a military component or not. Meaning that, again, that begs the question, why would you want to do a unilateral withdrawal from the Iran deal when you don't really know where you want to go next? To establish a policy. And that's, that's, of course, also where it's hard for Europeans to, to yeah. sort of look forward in, in, 
in the next period of saying, where are we going to end? And as I mentioned earlier, best case scenario where we actually work together on Iran and a sort of better deal, but the time frame is very short before sanctions kick in. I, I agree. Or, or sort of worst case where we're like, we don't really know what, what you're, you're up to and we will sort of have to defend our companies. I agree, I agree with you that there's not a possibility. The Europeans remind me of my ex-brother-in-law. <laughs> Whenever I would make a big purchase, like buy a car, you'd come to me and say, how much did you pay for that? And I'd say, you know, $5,000. Oh, why didn't you come to me first? You know, I could have got that for you for four thousand, right? <laughs> it's not, but it's not true. Right? Whenever I did come to him, he never helped me. Right? <laughs> so you don't, you don't. The Europeans don't really want to contain Iran. I, I do this uh, swimming pool analogy. There's somebody drowning in the pool, and all the Europeans are sitting, tanning, and drinking drinks, and saying, "He's drowning. Wait, the Americans will come and, and save him. We're fine. We can just sit here." Um, go, right, let's beat him up some more. No, no. <laughs> All right, <laughs> go ahead, Ben. Oh man, I don't know I'm if I want to follow that. that. Over here. I'm a wingman. I'm a. <laughs> I don't know how to get labeled. You're an honorary European today. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Um, you know, just just a couple of things on on the U.S. strategy. There again, there is a U.S. strategy. It hasn't been translated into policy. And you don't have to go read the the NSD or or, or whatever those long seventy page PDFs. Read three things to get a sense of how this administration conceptualizes the Iran threat or four things. The first is the October 13th decertification address by President Trump. The other is the October 13th Iran policy statement by the White House, where it layers how it sees the Iran threat, domestically human rights, terrorism, money laundering, ballistic missile, nuclear. Then go look at the January speech, where the president said he's not going to wave the next time. And then go read the May 8th speech, the speech from yesterday, where again, the president also mentioned the Iranian people, mentioned human rights, mentioned ballistic missiles. These are the pillars of what would constitute an Iran strategy. They need to be translated into policy, and they need to have been done before substantial action was taken on the nuclear file. So that, that, that's my big gripe there. You are speaking about the threat in a proper way. You are conceptualizing the threat in a proper way. <laughs> you understand where the past administration went wrong, yet you haven't done anything yet to course correct. That is the world we, we live in today. If the reliance now in the world we live in today is going to be on punitive or, or coercive economic measures, sanctions alone, Sanctions alone, are, I don't think, are going to be sufficient. They are the most powerful tool, obviously, short of war. But this has to be a dime paradigm approach. Diplomacy, information, military, economics. And they need to support each other. And they need to be in concert with each other. And if we have local partners, like Michael, not Mike, like Michael was saying, whether it's Saudis in Yemen or Israelis in Syria, then we need to actually coordinate with them and not just deconflict. Um, because honestly, some of these Iranian wars are, they appear expensive. But they can actually be done on the cheap. Think about how Iran spreads its influence in the region. Why is it the country with a GDP, uh, this is a joke, by the way, but why is it the country with a GDP of Burkina Faso is ascendant across the Middle East? That, that uh, it can't stop Saudi and Israel and America. It's because it makes low-cost investments that make its adversaries spend greatly to offset. Think about the cost of an Iranian ballistic missile. Now think about the cost of Iron Dome. Small cost requires high offset. Think about the cost of training a professional military. Think about the cost of training a guerrilla or a militia, taking Afghan refugees, giving them weapons, turning them into cannon fodder to supplement Russian air power. Now think about the cost of deploying a co conventional professional military. Very substantial. These small things that Iran does, whether it's sending men, money, or munitions into theaters of conflict, are relatively low cost. That's why it requires more than sanctions. And we are talking about the Iran threat in a proper way. 
Richard's conceiving of the right, has conceptualized the right sanctions approaches. He cannot be alone. Trump cannot use sanctions alone. We need to talk about what the appropriate diplomatic response is, what the appropriate intelligence response is, what the appropriate military response is to support that campaign of financial warfare, whether it's on the real or the, or the central bank, because these things can be done relatively cheaply for a country that has most of its stuff on the black books, for the IRGC, which operates independent ports and independent jetties. So you're not just fighting this same perpetual war of going after shell company after shell company after shell company. You know, FTD knows a thing or two about sanctions, but it knows that sanctions are not going to be the only tool. They are the most important tool right now, but they, will not, they should not be the only tool for an administration that has properly conceived of what to do about Iran. Yesterday we saw the Iranian parliament, or today, this morning, I guess it was yesterday we saw it this morning, where they burned an American flag in, in parliament. I talked to a New York Times reporter. It's called Wednesday. Roger. <laughs> Usually it's on Friday. Friday. <laughs> they talked, changed the day. Yeah, exactly. They and they didn't have a real American flag, so there was kind of a gesture of respect. Uh, <laughs> it was a paper flag. But um, I talked to a New York Times reporter this morning about Baghdad, and I said, "Is this you seen similar activity? Because Iran always threatened that they would do things to the United States uh, advisory group and military in Iraq if we walked away from the Iran deal. We've heard this, these threats from Shia militias. We've heard these threats from uh, Qasem Soleimani. Yet, said all is quiet. They don't know whether there's a long game in Iraq, but I think that the, uh, the religious parties associated with the Islamic Republic in Iraq are very concerned right now. Uh, and while it's inexpensive, like you said, to do things, they rely on, the, on those oh, funds to come in. And they rely and the on those funds for leverage. Uh, one quick thing is, obviously, we haven't talked about there is uh, an election coming up on Saturday. Yeah, Saturday. And uh, the outcome of that will influence a lot of the geopolitics right. going forward for Iraq. And that, we have a panel here that at is likely, on the 22nd. Yeah, that, that everybody should go to that. But uh, the, every, <laughs> I do think that there's probably <laughs> an Iranian um, hesitancy to do something that could tip the balance if they think right now they're in a good place. They want to try to see the outcome of the election if it's in their favor. And doing certain things that could blow back inside Iraqi politics would be would be bad for them at this time. Rich, if something happens after that. Rich, to that point, what levers do we have with the Iraqi economy? We've seen the RGC already playing in, in in oil, infrastructure, telecommunications, and and my concern is that again they try to use just just to your point, it's relatively inexpensive for them to continue to pay for these militias. They're able to use the Iraqi economy to offset U.S. sanctions. What can we do against the government? What arguments can we make against the Iraqi government if Fatah does well? If the coalition between Maliki's state of law, the Hikma party, and Fatah do well enough to control Ministry of Finance, oil, and transportation, what levers do we have? Well, we still have billions of dollars in various reconstruction projects that, that are still going on there. They do need our investment. They need our involvement. They cannot allow their projects to be caught up in the sanctions architecture. Uh, you know, in Afghanistan, uh, we had various projects that somehow had connected due to ports that the Indians were involved in in Afghan reconstruction projects, and we carved out in our sanctions an exception for that to ensure the Indians didn't get hit for helping us you know, with a project in Afghanistan. Uh, you could imagine th these kind of tailored waivers for the Iraqis as an incentive to be able to make sure their their big projects uh, that may include Iranians are not, are not being hit. Um, they also stand to benefit, um, you know, sort of unspoken. They probably don't want to like signal that to their neighbors. But as Iranian oil goes down, Iraqi oil, you know, somewhat benefits, um, not just Saudi oil. 
Uh, that was a, a sort of a side interesting note back in 2012, 2013 for the Iraqis. So we do have leverage there. I do think it gets much more difficult uh, if, if we truly lose control of the government and the Iranians take control of it in, in, in a proxy way. Wouldn't that give us more, more power to actually use these levers if they actually take over? More of an argument to do so. Uh, you know, others can talk more, but I would think the downsides. I'd, I'd like to talk are, about that. Are, are more. <laughs> but, but, I, but before you get to that, I just yeah, wanted to come ahead. back to, to <laughs> something. Um, I do think that we've had a strategy in place. This idea that we don't have a strategy. I just think that it's been constrained by two things. Uh, and when DOD was asked for their inputs to design the strategy in the interagency originally, uh, it was viewed of two different sort of filters they had to go through. Number one was the JCPOA. And that already filtered their ideas to put into a strategy. And number two is a, a real fear of congressional backlash regarding the authorization for the use of military force not extending to that mission. You talk to people at the Pentagon, you talk to people off, you know, people who are just watching the debate on Capitol Hill in the Middle East, and they think it'll never happen because of the backlash and hearings that senators uh, take to Mattis or to others on this issue. So I do think that there's, there's, Probably something that has been updated in the last few weeks, just looking at the tea leaves with no actual knowledge because it's likely classified. But if you saw General Botel went to Israel and had a meeting, and suddenly a few days later you start seeing Israeli strikes in the north of Syria, not in the south, um, you start seeing a little bit of an op-tempo where you get the feeling that there is some sort of con-ops that has been put into place where the U.S. military to the extent it believes it can, you know, with the constraints of the AUMF, can provide intelligence, can provide real-time information, can help and support what the Israeli Air Force then goes ahead and does without U.S. troops actually doing the kinetic action. Uh, I think that there is some sort of coordination there just from seeing the open source. Now, the readout I, I got from that was that they weren't impressed with what Votel had to say on it, and they did it anyway <laughs> to prove to us that we, they can do it with impunity. I, I agree with what Rich said, but I, I developed, when I worked in the White House, I developed a kind of rule of thumb, which is that when somebody makes a, um, a, an authorities or a legal argument as to why we can't do something, it's because they don't want to do it. Uh, because, you know, the, there was a great uh, international lawyer in the State Department, uh, uh, last name Schwartz, I can't remember his first name, and he, he, his principle was, he's a great lawyer, which meant not just a good one, you tell him what you want to do, and then he gives you the legal justification for it. And so in, in Syria, we have authorities. And just force protection, which is what the ones we used to chew up those Russians. They weren't actually headed for Americans. They were headed for our allies. Force protection, you can, you can, exp you can expand that to cover your own forces, and then, and then the area around your forces, and then your allies, and then the area around your allies. And you can do a lot with force protection if you really, if you really want to. So the, the, there, is an, there is a concept behind, that the military is working from. Uh, key elements of it that goes beyond just fear of Congress and it's you know it's that the strategic goal is defeating ISIS not actually defeating Iran we want to go after Iran um, uh, uh, indirectly we're afraid if we go after Iran not just that it's going to upset the JCPOA but that the Iranians are going to upset the order in um, in, um, in 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 Iraq similarly with regard to Lebanon and it goes beyond the military I mean look the Lebanon the Lebanese banking sector is flush with money if you look since 2006 the Israelis had a war with the Lebanon they pounded and pounded Lebanon now if you're a if you're a responsible banker and you see that you say gosh that's an economy that I want to invest in. Right, no, you don't right, say right. that. You say that this is a dangerous. But yet, 
Yet investment has investment has increased dramatically in in Lebanon. What what's that money going to? It's going to Hezbollah. It's going to Hezbollah's right. illicit network. And and we haven't taken down uh, a single bank in in in, in Lebanon. Why? Because we say, oh gosh, if we take that'll that'll destabilize Lebanon, right. and, and 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 this whole fear of instability. So the when we the minute we say that, the minute it's it's sort of similar to the Obama principle. Obama said over and over about Syria, there is no military solution, right? So we say the United States is not going to do anything to escalate the relation, to escalate in in Syria. That means escalates. what they hear, what what the Russians and the Iranians hear is. We have a free hand. We right. do whatever we want. Right. Just, um, just always on that note, it's always so funny because when the U.S. Ever, always says there is no military solution, it means the adversaries know that they have a military. They have solution. a military right, solution. Right. Right. And, and, exactly. every, and everything gets worse. Uh, just real quick on an admin note, um, Kylie Atwood was going to moderate this panel. She's a reporter from CBS News. Those of you that showed up late, that's why I'm in this role. Um, but All, she did say she agreed with everything I have to say. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> and, of course, she's, she's covering Pompeo's return of three Americans from North Korea ahead of sitting down with North Korea to negotiate a nuclear deal. Uh, anyway, um, another admin note. We started about 10 minutes late, Noam. So we'll, we'll go over uh, for questions as well. Uh, so you'll have time to ask questions. We'll go over. Uh, anyway, so the day after, less than 24 hours uh, since yesterday's decision, um, what leverage does Iran have here? I just want to note um, there are things that drive Iran in escalation and, and provide Iran with leverage after the deal, after the U.S. walked out of the deal, and there are things that actually dampen uh, prospects for escalation. And, and on the nuclear front, this is where Rish and I, I think, are in concert. Uh, if Iran wants to enact its major political strategy, which is to do the thing that I fear about, impede our logistics by trying to cleave apart the transatlantic community, use the Europeans as a proxy against us, fire up that economic lobby Michael was talking about, do all those things. And, by the way, to use the mechanisms of the deal, which remains in place, although you can't really have a JCPOA without America in it for too long, um, to get the formal condemnation of America, that whole strategy would be impeded by Iranian nuclear, quote unquote, facts on the ground. So if Iran begins to move beyond, even though the US has left the deal, um, the elements that are constraining its nuclear program today, which is it no longer would adhere to the additional protocol, even though it's doing that only voluntarily now, or let's say, for instance, it really ramps up its centrifuge production, or takes more centrifuges out of storage, does more things in terms of testing, operates more machines in, in terms of vacuuming, uh, operates more machines under vacuum, um, if it does really escalatory things beyond those, I think, testing measures, then they lose the Europeans. And then they lose their ace. And their ace is sicking the Europeans on us. And the moment you see an overt or covert dash to a weapon, which is a low probability, high impact scenario at this point in time, they lose their diplomatic ace. And the diplomatic ace is what's left of the JCPOA, the quote unquote legal process there, and their ability to marshal Europe against us and kind of create chaos in the transatlantic community. So that, that's one dampener on Iranian escalation possibilities. Regionally, I would say, if you look at the militias, um, in Iraq and Syria, where they're actually doing battlefield activities, the drivers of their escalation are more localized and therefore battlefield dependent. You know, Lebanese Hezbollah is a proxy of Iran. You've seen them do terrorism in, in uh, Argentina, Bulgaria, all around the world. But the bulk of their stuff is on the home front. It's against Israel. It's in Syria. It's in Lebanon. Um, and it will remain localized. So that, too, can dampen Iranian prospects for escalation. 
what can actually increase the prospects for escalation, of course, are the other things, the other M's, the men and the money and the munitions. Uh, you saw the Houthis fire a ballistic missile towards Riyadh, I think, on Wednesday, this morning. You know, there's only one missile in the Houthi Salah arsenal that can reach Riyadh. It's the one the Iranians gave them, the Qiyam-1 short-range ballistic missile. As much as Iran loves Assad, Iran has never given Assad a nuclear-capable ballistic missile. Iran has given the Houthis a nuclear-capable ballistic missile. Let that sink in. So that's one area I think we can expect to see some escalation, maybe the Yemeni theater. To, to, that, to that point, uh, an attack on Israel, does that lose Europe? Jonas, any escalation against Israel? It's a good question, and the question is also, how, how, what do you mean by losing Europe? I mean, it's not part of the sort of... Any I, sort of the rhetoric, uh, since the... No, it's not part of the Iran deal. So it wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't, I think, make an impact on, on sort of that assessment. That, as I said earlier, that's an assessment based on sort of IEA and, and their compliance. Right, right. Um, but neither were ballistic missiles, and neither was terrorism part I of mean, the Iran I, deal. I think, as you, as you saw in sort of the... Um, one of the last European Council meetings, there was a sort of effort... Um, particularly by the French, to sort of put forward new European sanctions on, on uh, Iran's missile program. So I think there's a willingness to sort of work also with this administration on addressing uh, some of those issues. And those, of course, depend on, on, on what the Iranians do on the ground. I wanted to debunk one thing that was here. It's a little bit sort of that European economic lobby. It's been pointed out several times. There is this sort of odd dichotomy here in the US. That Iran is sometimes 10 foot tall. And it's like uh, we had a panel that you were training where like Nadine was actually sitting up here saying that Iran would come to dominate them in the North American continent as their sort of plan. As European, you're sort of baffled by that this is like even possible to order. And so I just wanted to, but, right, but right. Um, that so won't happen before 2020. We're going to see Iran as, as sort of that. Day. It's, a, it's a regional uh, power. It's a small economy, as we've also said on this right. panel. So I also wanted to say on that sort of whole idea, there is this huge economic lobby in, in Europe for this, not really. I mean, it's actually been hard to get a lot of the investments into, uh, into Iran. Uh, they have a lot of reasons why their business environment is not great. On the banking sector, they are on Basel 1, where we're all on Basel 4 and 5. And so, I mean, there are a lot of other reasons beyond sort of your sanction that it's, it's, it's perhaps, which is why the Iranians have keep complaining of saying this is actually the US behind that makes that the Europeans are not investing that much. So I just wanted to say, I think the numbers aren't that great. And, and the example I gave earlier, actually, of Greece and Italy in 2011 really cutting down fully their oil supplies, that shows much more of a security argument in Europe on this. So I don't really see that sort of idea that it's because we are completely sort of economically dependent on this sort of new gold mine in Iran that, that dictates European policy. Rich, can you translate that smirk? Yeah, I, I, I would just say, you know, Barack Obama was not even a year into his presidency when he decided to uh, walk away and break signed agreements. Remember, JCPOA was not signed. He broke two signed agreements with European allies. And I didn't hear a whisper out of France, Germany, and Great Britain. Because it's okay to sell out Eastern Europe so long as there's no money on the line. But when you walk away from the JCPOA, it's a total outrage. I'll just make that point. But, uh, you know, I think that the Europeans really kind of understate the threat of Iran. We're not going to see, you know, like a Russia-style navy coming up on our shores threatening us with ballistic missiles in North America. It's just not going to happen. If you've ever, like, read these cadet cruises that they've done, they're just sort of silly. Um, but there has been a terrorist attack on European soil in recent memory in the last 10 years. There have been terrorist plots 
on U.S. soil here in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the, by the Iranian government. Uh, there have been terrorist attacks that took a lot of lives in South America. Um, there are a lot of American families who miss their loved ones because of a series of terrorist attacks that were sponsored by Iran. And so the idea that they don't have an asymmetric reach globally, that is their strategy. And I think that that is what makes them this evil empire that has their reach wherever they can find it. Um, and we, have to, we can't lose sight of that. What I'll just say is on the greatest uh, lever that the Iranians have, I don't think it's the Europeans long term. Uh, because in the Council, you need consensus. And Poland, the Czech Republic, remember that Paris and, and Berlin uh, and uh, Brussels and everyone else left them hanging when Barack Obama pulled the rug out on missile defense. Uh, and they understand that uh, they need the United States far more uh, against uh, their Eastern Front uh, than Western Europe may need us. And so their calculus of do I stand with, with Brussels and, and Paris and Britain and everybody against the United States right now and risk my relationship with Washington when Russia is expanding, I wouldn't do that. Right. That's crazy. And it's obviously great messaging to remind all those European countries on those borders, hey, by the way, the Russia-Iran relationship, that access is real. My enemy is your enemy. We're providing your protection if you want it. If you don't want it, let us know. Um, so in the end, I don't think Europe is really a problem here. I think they fold rather quickly. Um, the the long-term threat is our own domestic political situation. And that is, I think, where the Iranians will always try to um, push buttons to see if they constrain the willingness of a U.S. president to use uh, the true muscle of the United States to push them back. Uh, that goes into the military realm especially. It has until now gone into the economic realm. Uh, but the more that there is constraints politically on an unwillingness, a, a partisanship, a media frenzy of not pushing back against the Iranians, of framing them as some moderate regime that, that we, we just got to be friends with, that is their real power of success to be able to keep moving in the region. I, can I just reinforce that? I so totally agree with that. Um, the, it, it's, not, it's not just the, not just the domestic... We're going to have our own show on Fox, the, by the way. No, but there's, there's, this, there's this weird thing which I, which, uh, which you, I, I cannot explain. You need a psychiatrist, a, 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 a psychosociologist to explain why the United States never holds Iran accountable. Uh, almost, almost never, on the small scale and on the large scale. They, what, what did we do when they killed us? They were killing our soldiers in Iraq. What did we do to punish them for that? When they, when they put ballistic missiles in, 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 in Yemen, a country that, that historically they have no interest in, what did we do to counter that? We put them on the no-fire list, the no-target list. And we, we do things where we, we carry out reprisals that are, no, that are really non-reprisals, that they, they allow us to tick the box and say, oh, we showed them we did something. But in terms of actually causing them pain, Right. We don't do we, and we build them up actually to to appear like they are, that like they are ten feet tall or twenty right. feet tall. They're they have an economy the size of um, of what Maryland, the state of Maryland, or Denmark. Is it Denmark? Right. Right. I, I mean, who? Uh, um, imagine if if uh, an American Secretary of State spent as much time as John Kerry did on the Denmark problem. Right. I mean, it, I it's, it's 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 it's, <laughs> it's 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 crazy. It's crazy. Right. It's like. Wow, you know what? What are we going to do about Albania? How come we're not part of the? How come we're not focusing on that Alba on that Albania problem? If we brought the full power to bear of the United States, 
mm. and said, we're going to cause them pain, and we're going to make them, we don't have to go have a regime change, we don't have to go, we don't, we don't have to go attack, we don't have to save military first, but we say, we are going to bring the full power of the United States to bear to change the calculus in Tehran. We have never, ever done that. Well, we have an example of doing that now with North Korea. The levers we're using with Russia and China to get them to put pressure on North Korea is an example. One, one thing, and I'll get back to you. Um, you don't want to be moderated, do you? Uh, I was supposed to be on this panel, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I but, um, but what I wanted to say is this argument that Iran was never cheating on the JCPOA. That's the argument we hear on the other side. They were never cheating, yet they were cheating on existing UN Security Council resolutions with ballistic missiles, with terrorism out in the open. So, so I just find it fascinating, this argument that they weren't cheating in the shadows, but they were cheating out in the open for everyone to see. And, and they continued to do that. And again, it's the U.S. lovers. Again, it's a paper tiger, Iran is. It's becoming friendless. And it's broke. And this is the day after. This is where we usually don't get it right. And, and Prime Minister Netanyahu gave anyone who wants to make it Right. The evidence that they are in violation of the of the JCPOA and right. and the NPT. There's a very good argument to be made there, right. uh, and so if you if you want to make that argument, it's there to be had. Well, yeah, you know, you protect these five sites under the JCPOA, and you conduct all the cheating in these four sites that we can't look at. But uh, to your to your point, oh. um, well, just to kind of be, begin with what you were saying, uh, the administration didn't, hasn't to date used some of the strongest cards about Iran violating UN Security Council Resolution 2231 that it could have. In, in the annex of that resolution, there is an arms transfer provision and a ballistic missile testing provision. Obviously, the ballistic missile testing provision uh, is not as strong as the one found in 1929, which was from 2010. But uh, nonetheless, it still exists. And Iran, according to my calculations, has launched as many as 23 ballistic missiles since inking the deal. That's inclusive of surface-to-surface -surface missiles only, not anti-ship ballistic missiles, um, inclusive of tests and operations. If if you were really holding Iran's feet to the fire, that number should have been zero. That number should not be 23. On the arms transfer stuff, at least five shipments of things, AK-47s, rocket-propelled grenades, anti-tank weapons, have been intercepted going to Yemen. God knows what hasn't been intercepted to Yemen, as well as the short-range ballistic missile. That's a violation of Annex B. What have we done about that? You know, every time we brought it up at the UN, it was thwarted. The panel of experts, which comes out once a year on the Yemen resolution, 2214, comes out and occasionally says, yes, okay, there's evidence that Iran did not halt the transfer of, of these missiles, but that's it. We just kind of had a perfunctory 300-word PDF and moved on with our lives. And then just to Michael's point about not pushing back on Iran, look, if you're an Iranian security planner, look at the laundry list of evidence you have. You have founding Lebanese Hezbollah, the barracks, the embassy bombings, Kobar Towers, all the EFPs that are in Iraq, no substantial response. Why would you change your calculus otherwise? And if you're an American security planner, what you should look to is the Iran-Iraq war. When selectively Iran is militarily pushed back, it does change its behavior. In 1984, Iranian F-4s in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war would buzz Saudi airspace. Once one of those F-4s was shot out of the sky, for the remaining four years of the war, no Iranian F-4 entered Saudi airspace. Look at Operation Praying Mantis, relive some of the battles in the Persian Gulf that happened, why, the Iran's, why Iran's conventional navy, which they inherited from the Shah, became so bloodied and so aged so quickly, because they went up against the US Navy. I want to open it up to, to questions now. Again, we're going to go along, and I'm going to take them in batches of three. So we'll start with you first, Laurie, and then we'll go to you, sir. And then we'll go to uh, Laurie Milroy, Curtis N24. 
Um, my question comes from something that the panelists, including uh, Mike, mentioned, which is that as tensions rise with Iran, one way that Iran is likely to respond is by threatening U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. There is a, a, a colleague, Intifad Khanbar, an Iraqi-American, has made a cogent argument that coalition troops, the bulk of them in Iraq, should move to Kurdistan, which the U.S. says is part of Iraq. They would be safe there and in proximity to the Islamic State, which is mostly now in the disputed areas on the Kurdistan border. Does that sound like a, an interesting and even reasonable uh, notion to you? I'd actually uh, defer to Mike. Mike knows the sort of military situation on the ground much better than I do. I would say, Iraq. I would make the argument. We'll answer your question really quick. Make the argument. If there is a one Iraq policy that everybody in, in our State Department and Department of Defense says Iraq is one country, then it shouldn't be controversial to move the U.S. training and equip program to Erbil, especially when the Shia political parties in Baghdad are asking for an invisible footprint by the U.S. and, and a maintenance uh, maintenance of the U.S. training and equip program. Move it to Erbil, where it will be out of sight from the Shia political parties. Have it build a Sunni Arab and Sunni Kurdish force that can go after ISIS, because it has not been defeated. It has simply been had ter territory taken away. And deny a permissive environment for our agency Quds Force militias in the north. It's very simple. If there is a one Iraq policy, moving something to Erbil should be OK, because they're Iraqis, right? Um, it's, it's controversial. I don't, I don't know why. Uh, every party from the moderate Shia political parties to the extreme ones are, are, are wanting the U.S. to exit. And we're not going to exit because we have to defeat ISIS. Uh, if we're using that argument to stay in Syria, General Votel says we're not in Syria, we haven't been invited in, but we're there to defeat ISIS, then you stay in Iraq and you defeat ISIS because it hasn't been defeated. Uh, yes, sir. Working. Uh, Michael Kurtzig, who used to work on Iran many years ago on agriculture, Two quick points in, in question. Yesterday was May 8th. I think we remember May 8th, 1945, the end of one war. The question I have to you, and it sounds to me a little bit from what you're saying, that we're declaring war on Iran now. Not uh, from all the, the words that I hear. This sounds like a declaration of war against Iran. And the second point is, how much of the sanction money is still left, the $150 billion? No. I don't know what it actually was. Is that also under the new sanctions? Has that all been spent and so on? The Iranian people said it's been spent. And I think there's an acknowledgment that it's, that it's gone. Uh, and there's an acknowledgment, uh, I think anything, if we're acknowledging that Iran has been at war with us since 1979. But uh, to the panelists there on that one. Uh, and one more question, then I'll put that, those questions to the panel. Yes, sir. Kids of the JCPOA. The previous administration kind of feed the um, the Iranian regime's arguments for them now. Um, uh, Mike, yesterday you tweeted about uh, President Obama's uh, message and um, essentially that, uh, that the that, that the that the deal was was not set to expire. My question is: Is what planet uh, is that kind of philosophy or that that thinking from? And what uh, you know? What's the kind of thinking behind behind that belief, and 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 why does that exist, and and you know how are we not dealing in the facts about excuse me honest facts about the deal uh, when when we talk about uh, right. 
So put questions two and three to, to the panel. <laughs> so I'll put questions two and three to the panel. Uh, I can take the first one, you want to take the second one? Yeah, sure. Um, so the first one on the, on the sanctions issue, I think you covered the, the first part of your question. Um, on the sanctions issue, remember the sanctions relief, um, we calculated that in, in a couple of different ways. Number one, there was this, you know, as President Trump likes to talk about this, you know, uh, pallets of cash that were delivered. That was, you know, a limited amount of money. It was, it's a lot of money to a normal person, but, you know, on the context of the $150 billion and their annual sanctions relief, um, that was sort of a little, little present icing on the cake. Uh, the amount of money that they were able to repatriate immediately out of all these accounts that I talked to, I talked about before that are now on lockdown, they were finally able to go grab their money and bring it back, um, which is what they really needed. Uh, they were largely able to start doing that during the interim agreement. Um, as we, we eased up on some of the sanctions, uh, they were able to start transferring the money a little bit. Um, once the deal was inked, they, they really were able to repatriate all that money. That's a one-time repatriation. It's not an ongoing sanctions relief. Uh, if, you, if you take some of the calculations of $15 billion a year being spent in Syria, you know, whatever else their budget is for the IRGC and for the missile program, for Yemen, all that, um, over time that money, you know, starts evaporating, especially given their other budget needs internally. Um, their annual sanctions relief of just being able to do the business, to be able to grow their economy, to be able to get the Europeans and others to, to increase trade and investment, that obviously goes away. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, we don't get to recoup all the money they already took and, and brought back. Uh, the good news is, is that this government is so corrupt and so incompetent that they have uh, totally wasted all their sanctions relief, which is why they're already in a currency crisis. So that's the good news uh, if you're waging financial war on the regime. Uh, the bad news is, you know, can't get the pallet of cash back. Uh, the, the, um, on, the, on the war question, um, I, I guess I just two observations. One is the one that, that Mike made. Um, they're making war on us, and, and we have chosen to ignore it, um, which is not the same thing as us declaring war on it. Um, but, but secondly, the, the JCPOA and the Obama policy was appeasement and retreat. Um, and so appeasement and retreat that it was presented dishonestly as a change of heart by Iran. It was, a, it was a appeasement and retreat by the United States, which the administration spun as a change of heart by Iran and a desire after the election in 2013 of Rouhani to open up a new page with the West and so on. And that's why the President Obama yesterday said, you know, that this JCPOA is a permanent deal and it permanently prevents Iran from getting an, a nuclear weapon. I, if you believe that, I mean, there's no basis for, for serious conversation. Right? That the, the whole meaning of what the Prime Minister Netanyahu revealed uh, last week is that no, it hasn't prevented them. They have just, they have just adapted a new, um, a new strategy for, for, uh, for achieving it. So when you end appeasement, it is going to be presented by appeasers as a, as, a, as a declaration of war and plunging the United States into war. And I would just ask you, how are we going to achieve the goals that every president uh, since, uh, since Clinton has said we have with respect to the Iranians? That they will not get a nuclear weapon and that we will contain them in the region. And President Obama presented us with a false choice that we can, that there's some kind of diplomatic magic and, and you know, fairy dust 
that we can sprinkle on the Iranian relationship and everything will magically fall into place and we don't ever have to lift a finger militarily or otherwise and, or ruffle the feathers of our allies in order to get the goals that we said we achieved. That's just false. If we want to, if we want to achieve those goals, then we, have to, then we have to get tough. And I'm just saying, let's be honest about it. I'll take uh, three more questions and then put it back to, uh, we'll go to this gentleman, then we'll go back to you, sir. And then this, how many, three? Okay, one, two, three, perfect. Hi, Louis Morano. A few years ago, when the deal was being negotiated, the word was that the French were being much tougher than the Obama administration. My question is, is any of that recoverable or is that passe? Is, is that just gone up in smoke? Partially recoverable. We, we, and you can already see it when, uh, when, when Macron came uh, last week to, to Washington, he was triangulating between the Germans and, and Trump. Yeah. He, made a, he didn't come and say, I'm coming to convince President Trump not to uh, simply say, not, not, to, not to leave the JCPOA. He already factored in the fact that Trump might leave. And he came and said, I'm looking to talk to him about four pillars. The JCPOA is just one of them. And then there are these other three pillars. And that set him up, that put him in a position then after Trump made the decision to leave, he can say, well, we are engaging with the Americans on all of these different pillars of our, uh, um, uh, of our relationship. That way he's not sitting on the sidelines just grousing like my ex-brother-in-law to say, you know, you should have talked to me. Why didn't you come to me? Uh, and so on. The, the, um, the, the French have always been the most serious about the security threat that, that Iran represents, and in particular, the security threat that its nuclear program um, re represents. Um, it, goes, it goes in this order, the French, the, the, the British, and then the Germans, who are, are simply not in the security game. That's why they were President Obama's um, favorite interlocutors on the issue, because Angela Merkel never called up Obama and said, I want you to use military force to put pressure on the, um, uh, on, on the Iranians. Now, Obama, Obama destroyed the coalition that we had. We had a bipartisan Republican-Democrat co uh, coalition to contain Iran, and we had a U.S.-European coalition. And Obama destroyed those. There, there's no, that coalition doesn't exist anymore. And the French, quite, uh, and the Europeans in general, they, they feel whipsawed. Because they were told one thing by George W. Bush, and then Obama came and told them the opposite. And Obama, Obama unilaterally negotiated the JCPOA, but presented it as 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 great uh, multilateral diplomacy by the, by the United States. I mean, they they came up with this whole line, a total fiction, that the that the sanctions that the sanctions architecture against Iran was starting to was was starting to. Um, uh, to erode and to be destroyed because we were too hardline and we had to we had to make these concessions to the Iranians in order to keep the Europeans on board. So it was it was irresponsible unilateralism by Obama masquerading as multilateralism. What what Trump is doing is responsible unilateralism. But we've whipsawed the Europeans. We have to be I mean, we have to be honest about that. I if I were them I would I too would look at Washington and say what's wrong with you guys? You'd say you say do X we do X. Then you say do Y we do Y. Now you come back and say we're going to go back to X. This is crazy so the but but we can recover some of that with the with the with the French some of it the, the, the French dynamic that's interesting here and I'll come to you Jonas is that uh, there's a French dynamic that was a nail in the coffin for the Iran deal and that was the French speaking John Kerry there was no way the president was going to give John Kerry a victory here 
when he was the face of those supporting the Iran deal. All right, go, Joe. Well, say with a moment, Mike. I actually tended to agree with what you were saying, at Never. least until sort of the last minute riff. <laughs> <laughs> analysis of, so it's, it's completely correct. I mean, the French were in negotiation tougher. They've also, I think, used that sort of with the Trump administration of saying we were not necessarily completely in favor and could see the flaws in, in, in this deal. And that's exactly why Macron came with this sort of new structure. Of course, the problem is that now, by the unilateral withdrawal, one of those four pillars have been sort of unplugged a little bit. And the question is back to my early sort of best case, worst case scenario. Best case scenario, we actually use that time for a type of new negotiation, but that depends on a lot of other factors and time is short. Um, and worst case is it sort of drifts into a little bit of a sort of tension over, over sanctions when they uh, get reintroduced. All right, last two questions, this gentleman here and then this gentleman back over here. Uh, Stephen Morris, I'd like to ask Mike and any of the other panelists, in fact, uh, how would you uh, operationalize a policy of either uh, rollback or containment militarily of Iran in Syria and Yemen? And what would the difference be between uh, rollback and containment? How would we know the difference? Second question, is it not a fact that we can't institute any policy of containment or rollback of Iran in Iraq because of the political complexity, and we could only institute it if we were attacked by Iran. Okay. And then this question here. Um, as much as you can shed light on, I'd like to understand what's occurring or what's occurred in Secretary Mattis's thinking about Iran. So two years ago, as you said, he went to sleep thinking uh, the biggest threats to the U.S. are Iran, Iran, Iran. Now he sort of appears like the dove in this administration. Uh, and do you think it's, it's sort of that he is just trying to provide an intellectual counterweight, uh, kind of devil's advocate, or has he had a profound strategic recalculation? I would just say that every, every uh, devil's advocate position Secretary Mattis has taken has advantaged the IRGC. And I'm, I'm okay with a team of rivals, but a lot of us that's worked with General Mattis, and it pains me to say this, don't recognize this man, especially when it comes to Iran. Uh, I want a Chuck Norris with one-liners and a Chuck Norris with actions. I want Mad Dog back. Uh, I don't. I think with the Iran deal gone now, it should unconstrain Mad Dog. Again, if a Secretary of Defense doesn't want to put Americans in harm's way during his tenure, he's forcing the next Secretary of Defense to do exactly that, and we'll be behind the uh, the eight ball, so to speak. Six months to to one year. I can I can make the. I can make the Mattis argument, I think, sympathetic argument. I'd say the U.S. military looks at um, the last, you know, since 2001 to now, what is that, last 17 years, sees an enormous, you know, sees the civilian leadership from both parties coming at them with grand solutions for the, the Middle East. Um, at huge expense of blood and treasure, which and, and, and nobody has paid a higher price than the military, and 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 very little to show for it. Um, and so there's a kind of tendency to say, you know what? Don't come with don't, don't come to me with your new solution for the Middle East that's going to involve a big uh, uh, that's going to involve a bigger even a you know even a small um, sacrifice by by our boys. Uh, and especially when, you know, for most of this administration, there's been the tension with North Korea. And I can just imagine, I'm not, I'm not saying I have any knowledge of this at all, but just having been in those kinds of environments, 
I can see Mattis sitting around the room and, uh, uh, and people from the State Department and elsewhere saying, you know, let's flex our muscle, our military muscle in the Middle East, and that's how we'll get what we want. And he immediately thinks, you know, you're, we're about to start a war in North Korea. Can I do it one war at a time? Right. That's uh, uh, those kind of those those kind of attitudes, and especially after the military has gone through a lot of um, uh, um, because of um, you know all of the budgetary constraints that have been placed on the military. That he probably doesn't feel that he has the greatest force that he wants to uh, 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 the the force that he wants to go get involved in a major in, in a major escalation with the um, uh, with the Iranians. So I would just say for very um, uh, for very understandable, justifiable reasons, there is a there's a lot of uh, caution in the in 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 the in, in the military now. But I, I just repeat myself and say that I, I I my argument is very simple. That caution will not allow us to achieve the goals that everybody says we want to achieve. So if we're actually serious about the goals we're announcing, that's not how we're going to get it. I just want to say something on that. Uh... Mattis became mad dog in Afghanistan and Iraq as a combatant commander. And I would say that instead of listening to civilians tell Mattis what he should do in Iraq and Syria, we should say, why don't you use the Mattis solution that we used during the surge? You built a Sunni force in Anbar that became the awakening that was mirrored all across Iraq that became the sons of Iraq that not only decimated al-Qaeda, but also uh, curbed Iranian influence and targeted the Quds force. Mattis has the solution. When Mattis was named Secretary of Defense with McMaster, they were surge guys. They saw this work. They were the right team to go in and be able to do this. And I don't, I don't recognize. Well, that's the, you know, the, the, the answer. The answer, um, if you if you want to try to find a midway answer between the caution uh, that I described and what Mike is describing, is allies. That's why I am so interested in the in the relationship with the Israelis, because. The, the Israeli problem, when the Israelis go to target the Iranians, is not the Iranians, it's the Russians. So if we backstop the Israelis against the Russians and we, and, and we deter the Russians, then we can un unleash the Israelis to cause pain on the, uh, on the Iranians. And, but the, this, this, the cautious attitude of the military is, wow, I don't want to do that because that'll suck the U that, that, that's going to suck the U.S. into another conflict that has no end to it, and and, and sorry, no, no, we, we no, also no. shouldn't we shouldn't blame it all on Mattis because Donald Trump himself. I mean, Donald Trump said, "I'm getting out of Syria," right? I mean, he's he's got he's got one leg in, and 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 he's and he's running for the and he's running for the exit. So, so the president is telling the Secretary of Defense, "Don't get me sucked into a major conflict in in, in Syria." So that just increases the caution. Uh, yeah, and again, Trump can't criticize Obama for leaving Iraq in 2011 and, cre and creating ISIS and then claim victory in Iraq and Syria, you know, saying that ISIS is defeated and allow ISIS 2.0, which it already is, to reemerge, a security backslide. So there's a lot of things. You're right. And he can the, say it. He just won't be right. Right, right. <laughs> and the good thing is another Marine, General Kelly, kept Trump in Syria, rightfully so. Yes. Um, just I'll venture into... Uh, I mean, I think the, the quick answer is Matt is, is defense secretary. He's not a CENTCOM commander. And if you look at the national security strategy, it highlights great power competition. What is it to rebuild U.S. readiness for great power competition with China, second degree with Russia? I mean, and that figure back to sort of how high we rate Iran doesn't just fill in that big space. So uh, that's where I think he 
to a certain degree, completely fulfills the role of the defense uh, secretary, first point. And second, I would add something on, on the French and the sort of, which comes to the Syria piece, is that the Europeans, particularly the French, but um, are very interested in the US stays on in Syria. Uh, and I think, therefore, actually, the Iran card comes into play, that right. Macron was also convincing Trump, if we want to do more on Iran, part of that is staying in, in Syria. Although for the Europeans, it's mainly about that if we need to do stabilization, because if we don't do stabilization, then we have to return to refugees, there are one million and they will not return. But I mean, so the reasoning is different, but it does maybe make for sort of certain convergence about saying that the, the reasons, every, every European, no, you do not convince Donald Trump about saying you should do a nation building program in Syria, that's why you should stay. But saying, but hey, think about uh, Iran, which is particularly what Macron cleverly did. So the, 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 the French have been consistent always in seeing Assad and Iran as a major problem in, in, in Syria. The Germans are inclined to reach out and, 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 and negotiate, but the French always have said the major problem. And that's, that's another way that, that we align with, against Iran with the French. And the good thing is Russia is set on its hands. I mean, I think to, to your point about what will Russia do and what pressure do we need to put on Russia, Russia's set on its hands. It has not launched one missile in defense of anything we've targeted, whether it's been Assad's chemical munitions or you know, this, this limited response, but also what Israel's done. So I think, again, Russia is in Syria for Russia, not to protect the Assad regime and not to protect Iran. And, and you wanted to say something. Yeah, just on the, on the Yemen equation, you know, you're looking to roll back or contain or counter Iran. You know, Iran has strategies, Iran has values. The Islamic Republic looks to, you know, use both to get its hands in the region, but it's also a highly opportunistic actor. So I would just say, define the end state in every theater of conflict with Iran. Know which ones you can bait and bleed Iran into. Know which theaters Iran has sunk more money into and more men into. And know which ones are of greater value and lesser value to Iran. So definitely Syria takes precedent over Yemen. Look at the investments, measure by those three measures, men, money, munitions. And then if in theaters like Yemen, define a political end state and work with your partners who are already in that theater to get to that end state. Make sure that the UAE and the Saudi mission are on the same page. Make sure that you have the legal authorities under UN Security Council Resolution 2214, as well as with respect to CENTCOM and the Navy, to make sure that you can increase the pace of interdictions. Make sure that nothing is getting through Oman. Establish a channel with Oman. Make sure that there's no land route for any Iranian weapons getting into Yemen. And make sure that the Houthis have an exit, because the Houthis are not yet a full-blown Iranian proxy. The day that happens, you kind of have to write off the Yemeni theater, kind of like what we fear about a lot of Shiite politicians in Iraq today. Uh, out of respect for everybody's time, Rich, I'm going to give you a last comment. Uh, yeah, I was just going to try to address the, the rollback idea. I think a lot of comments that have been made yeah, on, uh, on Syria have been excellent. Uh, probably a combination of the two mics gets you pretty close to the equation. Um, take your point on Iraq, though I do believe that we have a lot of leverage on the border uh, with Syria and that any convoys we see as part of the land bridge uh, is, a, is a point of weakness for the Iranians that we, just because we own the airspace, can intercept. Um, I think that uh, we have cargo flights that continue basically unabated that keep coming from Iran into Syria. Uh, these, are, these have to be interdicted. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, I think with the sanctions coming back on the air, airline industry, I think that's a good first step, but we're going to have to go further than just economic sanctions to actually interdict those cargos. And then uh, more to Benham's point, the Yemen theater is, I, I think if you're the Saudis, it's, it's been fairly embarrassing. Um, you know, and I, and I, I respect them. I've you know, been there. I've talked to, to people who are, who are working the mission. Um, but it should not have taken this long to accomplish what they need to accomplish. 
Part of that is a lack of ISR provided by the United States. Uh, that was withdrawn by the Obama administration in the final year. Uh, some of that's come back online from what I understand. But I mean, the Saudis complain of just not having 24-hour coverage uh, on their ISR. Um, that could be right, but there's also some basic questions. Why aren't we doing intel that's just targeting supply routes that Venom's talking about, sea routes, land routes? Why aren't we interdicting those? These are some of the things that are that are relatively simple for the United States military, even if it's just intel support to our allies to accomplish. The fact that it hasn't been done is just a big question mark to me. It's, uh, Secretary Mattis is the one that doesn't want to do that. Uh, I'm happy to say that. I don't like saying it, but it's just he's been the voice that has said we shouldn't do these things. I'm trying to get you a job in the Defense Department. No, no. <laughs> making it hard. Well, you know, there were three red lines for Mattis. Uh, one was uh, Tillerson being fired. The other one was, was Bolton going into the NSC. And the other one was walking away from the JCPOA. So we'll see if Mad Dog returns or whether Mad Dog goes to Amazon. <laughs> all right, that's all the time we have. Sorry to go over. I apologize. But I hope you found it an interesting panel today. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.